Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, another conversation with Lucy by Nature, me and Ian Gill. Today it's November, middle November. It is misty, it is fruitful, and I'm in contemplative mood as I watch the apples dive bomb my dog in the back garden. Who better to contemplate with a good old friend of mine, Mr. Mike Robinson. Hi, how are you, Mike? Hi, Ian, very well, thank you. For those who don't know you, Mike, I've known you for a while. Um, I've been very lucky to work with some smart people and you are definitely in the pantheon of smart people. You're incredibly well read. So I, I feel like not only am I surrounded by a physical library, I've now got access to the world's biggest agile library. So thank you very much for joining me. Actually, that's very kind. I like it. Yep. The, the, boar, the agile boar. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they, well, when you've got two agile people in a room, what have you got? An argument, usually. But uh, I've always found your arguments extremely well constructed, so uh, I'm going to let you have most of the field of the play. Um, how did you get into agile? Was it early in your career, or were you sort of born agile? Did you, you have the innate understanding of it, or did you, as you worked in places like McDonald's, Douglas, find that? <laughs> Mm, the life isn't quite right here. Excuse me. Yeah, it's interesting. Was I born agile? No, I was. I was, you know, born into my into a succession of engineers and, and carpenters and joiners. Um, what I learned early on, the, my earliest sort of process learning is that I, I have no talent in my hands. <laughs> so, so I, my ancestors were terribly disappointed in me. Uh, like, I could screw up any any piece of woodwork. Um, so long story short, um, I arrived in computing uh, sort of a couple of years after school in the, in the early 80s and, and had a pretty traditional career for 10 or 12 years. Um, great time to be alive in the computing business. You know, you've got the emergence of Microsoft. So, you know, Xenix and Unix and MS-DOS and Windows and all of those things and businesses take the mini computer right so people are setting aside little rooms and, and the miracle of having a computer without air conditioning um, and in the early 90s 92 93 i ended up working at mcdonnell douglas information systems which was a sort of conglomerate of um, tech companies that, that, the, that the aviation company had bought yeah on the grounds that um, John McDonnell thought at the time thought that owning these these computing companies was cheaper than buying licenses for their product. Um, Very interesting strategy, actually. You know, we're buying so many copies of X, Y, and Z. Why don't yeah. we just, you know, buy the company? Um, so anyway, interesting approach, and you ended up with with MDIS. One of the companies they bought was Northgate. Northgate was a payroll company, amongst other things. Yeah. So my history is sort of similar to the Agile, some of the Agile founders in that it, it, it's sort of ground zero is a, is a payroll project. Yeah. And, and what this was, was the rewrite of Northgate's existing payroll into a new technology for a lighthouse customer, a bank. And I arrived as a so-called expert in the technology, a thing called Pro4, a fourth generation language. Um, and I arrived, you know, with knowledge of that technology and with a clutch of what we thought were best practices. Um, <laughs> to, <laughs> so to, I don't know, I was going to tell them, tell them what, what to do, right? So McDonnell Douglas had, if, if you joined Information Systems, you were presented with a library. Um, I don't remember all of them, but, you know, books by people like Ed Yorden, um, Michael Jackson's Structured Programming. 
And, and, and the, the one that sticks in my mind is Gain and Sarsen. Um, and Gain and Sarsen were in the sort of analysis area and, and their, their book drew the first reverse, reverse waterfall I ever saw. It talks about an iterative approach, the spiral. It may have referred to Beam, you know, Barry Beam and his spiral, but it spiraled up and to the right towards the goal. Yeah. Um, so that, that was interesting. And, and so that sort of went into some of our so-called best practice, which I took into the payroll team. And I tried to work with those guys, not just to be good at Pro 4, to, to, but to be good at what we just called the prototyping approach. Which they promptly renamed. Uh, first of all, the Mike Robinson patented sneak up from behind um, approach, um, because I would, you know, they'd be trying to build this big payroll, and I'd constantly be saying, "Look, cut that out, cut that out, cut that out. Let's build this bit that works. Right? Let's just have, let's just make two and two equal, you know, or, or this bit or that bit." Um, and then they called it maintaining the system into existence. Ooh. Yeah, which I, which I was sort of. I thought that was great. And that's, that's what we, because they, you know, they accepted me into the team pretty quickly. Um, and they were a very friendly group. And, and it's interesting looking back that what this was, was a long standing team yeah. with deep expertise in their domain. Yeah. Um, deep expertise of their customer base. Um, and the only thing that was new to them was the technology. And so we built, a core, call it a walking skeleton, right? Yes, yeah. We did, we built a core. We, we, we could pay 10 people with the same payroll profile, with the same, and then we added and added and added. And we did a couple of interesting things. One of the things we did was um, the Friday full team, um, everybody in a tiny room, and we would show and tell. Product progress and planning, I think we called it, you know, um, and, we just, we just showed each other, you know, all our work for that week and talked about what we're doing the next week and exchanged plans and like, well, I want so-and-so and well, I'm on holiday. So, oh, damn, you know, figuring out the next week. Yeah. And that was something those guys had been doing for donkeys. It was new to me, um, that weekly. And, and in effect, you know, Pro4 had a very simple build. It was effectively continuous integration just by nature of, it, of, of the tech. Yeah. So... Um, we always had a product that worked that we that we could show each other on 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 the Friday. Um, so that that was interesting. But what turned it from a sort of um, tech, um, what turned it into a life changer? Yeah, was what happened next, where McDonnell Douglas sent down a, a manager, senior manager, a man called Alan Barwick, who, you know, um, yeah. I liked Alan. <laughs> I wish I knew where he was now. And Alan turned up to be the senior manager from head office, right? And he had, he had this great expression, you know, I'm here from head office to help you. <laughs> be, be helped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love that. Yeah. And, uh, and so as a manager, Alan's primary interest, of course, was when will you be done? Yeah. When will we be done? So Alan sat down and asked us a whole bunch of questions. Um, they're pretty much related to the technology, but if you imagine, it was kind of how many screens, how many reports, how many long batch updates, yeah, how many yeah. of these. 
Um, and, and, and what sort of sizes do you guys get? Are there big screens and small screens? And we sort of sat there and said, well, yeah, there's big and small and there's never a medium batch update because it has to sit a screen and blah, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And Alan's questions were, what ratio do these things exist in? And how, how long does a big one and a small one take? And what happened after all of these questions? And he kind of took two or three weeks going around asking different people and averaging it out and sharing it back with us. And then he walked in one day and said, okay guys, and this would be about February, March, February, he said, we're going, you guys are going to be done on the 4th of December, which, to which we took exception. <laughs> We've no way of knowing, we have never used the technology before, blah, blah, blah. Well, I, I can tell you that he was right within five days. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and I sort of learned why in the intervening period, because I ended up working more for Alan, you know, as a process expert. And it was to do with large number theory and, and queuing theory and statistics. Yeah. And, and in essence, um, there, there might have been many errors in any single judgment but they basically all washed out as more or less accurate. Um, you know, the, the, the number of days for large as against number of days to small might've been wrong. The ratio of small to large might've been wrong. The ratio of screens to batch updates might've been, you know, wrong. But in the end, if, if it's a big enough thing, it kind of comes out at, at roughly right. And so long as you're prepared to accept roughly right, it's an extremely useful thing. So that was the first time I ever saw that kind of um, large number, um, large number theory, queuing theory thing. So I, you could sort of say I came at it originally, apart from that Friday show and tell, you know, it was very process based. It was very much, when will you be done? Alan introduced me to uh, function point analysis, um, which is a, is a, controversial topic I, I know and a lot of people you know it's the awarding of points on a different basis than the traditional agile one yeah uh, but you can certainly do it retrospectively and and what I found interesting then and and over the years is that if, if you do what he did and walk into a long-standing team in a technology in a this whatever those ratios stay pretty constant yeah yeah you know I went into a healthcare company about five years ago. They had a long-standing team, long-standing domain, long-standing problems, long-standing software. And if you looked at all the different modules that they'd done in the healthcare world, they had five or six different products. But if you, and of course now you can do it automatically, so we used some Microsoft tools, but you could go, you, you could actually say, well, we write forms-based software in Microsoft technology for this audience. And all of our products roughly have these ratios of modules of, of things that take us roughly this long. So actually, if you could, I grant you the real problem is in projecting forward, um, but, but it does give you some, some sense of, uh, of solidity. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not here to advocate for uh, function points, um, but, but, I guess I'm. I guess I'm less anti than many in the, in, in the community. <laughs> I think what's interesting is um, 
listening to Alan's approach, how calm he was. <laughs> I get this sense of calm and as I played this chess game a few times, I know what's going to go on. I'm going to ask these key questions and I'll be, you know, it doesn't sound like he was learning it for the first time and he was giving you the benefit of that technique and experience, but also the way to do it. I, I, that's right. You know, he was leaning, you know, shoulders of giants, right? He, he was leaning on uh, the function point community and also on a guy called Capers Jones. Um, I don't know if you know. No, no. So somewhere in that um, collection behind me. For our radio listeners, Mike is just retreating. <laughs> <laughs> very, very fetching black jeans. Yeah, oh, bless you. So applied software measurement, global analysis of productivity and quality. Right. And it's an inch and a half thick book. It, it does what it says on the tin. It's a global analysis of productivity and quality. The, the, the first edition or possibly the second existed in the early 90s, what I'm talking about, and he's kept it updated since. Um, I think he's still with us. Certainly his company is. And so what Capers Jones did and what Alan lent on was that volume of data yeah. about... Um, software development productivity and because capers jones measured thousands of projects 10 12 000 projects in different technologies you could kind of like capers jones was someone who could cheerfully write a book and did that said visual basic is three times more productive than c plus right. okay how do you know this well because eight thousand projects in one in one or the other you know yes says so, so. and when i say productivity i mean um, function points per programming month or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what, again, um, sort of recognizing that function point analysis is, is easy to do, a lot easier to do retrospectively rather yeah, than yeah, yeah. forecast. So it's, you know, there's still that problem. But the main, the main thing I took away from the book and from my relationship with, with, Alan, apart from some funny sound bites, um, Copas Jones drew a graph which mapped programmer productivity, function points per, per whatever, against the size of the system. And he mapped them all on the graph. And then he used statistical analysis to draw a line through the cluster. And you could derive the formula for that line. And it's the cube it's two times the cube root of the size of the system or something yeah and what and, and so the simple statistical observation based on thousands of projects is software product software engineering productivity is right broadly speaking x times the cube root of the size of the function you're writing you know? and there's almost nothing you can do <laughs> really yeah to change that right They're like twelve thousand projects measured yeah, retrospectively, are clustered around this curve, yeah. and if okay. you're if you're really bad, you'll sort of be here, and if you're really good, well, actually, no, there are no there are no projects plotted here, and 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 so that was the impossible zone, as they called it, and it wasn't true to say there was some nobody in there. There are some projects in there. Yeah. Then you start analysing those outliers. Right? How did how did projects get in the impossible zone? And it turns out that these people are all teams that have been standing for 10 years. 
teams that had been working in the same technology for 10 years, teams that had been working in the same domain for 10 years, and to be in the impossible zone, all of those three things needed to be true. That is now very interesting, isn't it? Well, that was my first, you know, it's a story I like to tell, perhaps somewhat more crisply than I've told it now, but when people ask me how important is it that teams stay together, well, you know, if they'll, if they'll pay attention long enough, right, because it's a dull story, right? For preference, here's the graph, here's the industry statistics, here's where you'll likely be if you do nothing. You want to get in the impossible zone, you need to set up a team and keep it running and, and, and sustain that so that these good things happen. Yeah. And never more important than today when I see companies Europe-wide, at least, might be global, but my experience is Europe-wide, um, persuading themselves that they don't need offices, that they don't need teams, that everyone can work remotely, and it'll all be all right. An office is a perk. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that. Um, Agile does not promote long-running teams and physical co- co-location. Yeah. co-location. Um, because you know out of some wish out of some abstract wish we recommend those things as we recommend all the other things because it's our observation that they work to make us more productive and more more resilient in the face of other people's change yeah yeah. and that was my first exposure to that in the early 90s and and, and you can probably tell you know it's with me now it's with me still (laughs) absolutely but I, i like the fact that as is always with you, Mike, you, know, you start with a conjecture, you bring some proof, some evidence, and then you wrap it up into, well, then this is why it matters. And you know, and <laughs> Big fan of evidence. <laughs> Big fan of evidence, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you know, it's interesting we start with estimation, which and when, when you chat, normally when a, uh, <clears throat> someone from head office says it will be done by 4th of December, it's usually a Churchillian statement of defiance in the face of any evidence, or right. of evidence, to be honest, and, uh, and, yeah. and there we go. Yeah, Make, we must, right? It has to be that way. Make it so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the great alpha male pr- uh, pronouncement, make it so. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so, and of course, Alan faced that resentment. I can, I can tell you when we realised he was going to be right within a whisker. Yeah. Nobody was happy. <laughs> no, like, like, people started plotting how we could make the project later. Really? Out of, out of sheer spite. Even yeah. when he'd actually gone through a reasonable estimation process, as we would uh, Well, and more than that, he brought it to us. I mean, he didn't just turn up and say, yes. it's 4th of December. He, he sort of stood up and said, based on everything you've told me. Over the last three weeks. Over the last three weeks, it's the 4th of December. Here's the logic. And we, and we had an opportunity as a team in a Friday show and tell to, to dispute the ratios and the numbers. But you, you, couldn't, you couldn't sort of argue the fact that if these suppositions if the underlying suppositions are correct, then that's the outcome. So the only debate then is, are our suppositions correct? And, and I, I guess the difficulty we had was that they weren't, we didn't estimate the payroll. Right? We, we estimated like, the nature of life. <laughs> How many of these are there in general, in your working life? You know? and, and so that was fascinating. I, I, I must just, um, also the black mark, um, along the way there were 
So, so the Friday show and tell was cancelled in the interests of productivity oh. by head office. And um, so that's something else I learned. Also, um, the Friday show and tell and the collaborative communal sense of where we were based on actual product yeah. was, was taken away and replaced with, you know, the manager walk around, where are you, where are you? And if, on a th- if at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon, you said, I'm nearly X, I'm nearly finished with X, um, like you would be reported as having finished X. And then when the Friday afternoon walk around happened the following week and you were still 90% finished on X, yeah. guess whose problem that was? Yeah, you're late. They suddenly, yeah, you're late. Well, no, I'm not. Well, I already reported you finished. Well, why did you do that? <laughs> Um, so there were some difficult moments and, and again, I learned from that, right? Yeah. Um, because, um, Alan and the team should all have got a lot more credit than they did, but that reporting of the wish rather than the fact was a real issue for us all. Um, and so, you know, by the end of 93, I have resolved only ever to report completed product <laughs> and that, you know, uh, which, which obviously I, I, I could do because, as I say, Pro 4 as a technology lent itself to continuous integration and being, being done. You know, we had tests. Um, and, and really, you know, I'm sure we should probably move on from ancient history, but I will just um, tell you what happened in the end. Okay. Um, in the end, everybody was very, very happy. Everyone in McDonnell Douglas was thrilled. The estimate was right. The product was built. The team had become very proficient in the technology. We prototyped it into existence. The team had somewhat mutinously started doing show and tells in the pub, uh, and, and you know, where, <laughs> um, and and agreeing what they would say uh, for the three o'clock management walk around. Uh, okay, it, it's all terrific. Uh, at some point in late December, early January, um, the lighthouse customer came to see it. They stopped the meeting within half an hour and they challenged the group, what is this? Just absolute black and white, what, what, what are you showing us? And um, well, the answer, and the answer is scarcely credible at this remove, but the answer was genuinely, this is your payroll per the spec. What spec? Said the client. And a spec was waived, right? You hear this anecdote about the interesting Victorian novel spec. Yeah, yeah. I, I swear, hand to God, right, that, that, that there was such a, a thing for this payroll. And, and why not? Because there was a long-standing payroll expert, yeah. they grew the payroll spec, inch and a half thick, A4, signed by the bank. The representatives of the bank in the room simply laughed and said, well, yeah, but we didn't read it. And there it was. There, there it was. You know, that's the, the, the essential moment for all that we'd shown each other the work every week and got to estimates and congratulated ourselves for a year on the customer within half an hour simply declared it not what I want absolute rubbish bears no relationship to our desire and nor does that spec we signed off on contractually yeah yeah for millions so um so there it is it's really just um why you know so for me um, that whole thing about showing the customer every periodically or working with them in the room, all of that, 
I, I know that others feel this deeply. Um, I feel it deeply from that, from that experience. There were one year and the triumphant feeling yes. with which we walked into the room, followed by absolute, you know, they talk about blood on the walls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Not, not pretty, not happy. And this is a really, uh, I think many of us talk about this a lot, um, value. value. So we've got a beautiful agile team, for want of a better word. Beautiful yeah. agile team. It's, it's estimated really very wisely and with great sense. And that of itself is a dream state to reach. For yeah. To yeah. You know, when we and, I, and I'd say, actually, if I may, you know, forecasting. Um, you forecasting usefully. You know, do you know what I mean? I'm trying to make the difference between, and I, I kind of said this before, we didn't estimate the payroll. Yeah. But we had been able to forecast roughly our productivity. Yeah. You know, to a useful degree. I mean, I, I get that we delivered a payroll on the fourth, but um, I, I sort of, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I feel it's helpful. It's just an instinct, really, but I do, I do, I prefer to talk about forecasts rather than estimates. Yeah. Um, the I find the language difference is, is helpful, right? The instinctive reaction to the word forecast is to understand that it's a forecast. The instinctive reaction to an estimate is to continue to ask for a single number. Yeah. That's, that's a fact when it's, you know, as we know, it should be a range within, yeah. with understood probability. Um, and when you say forecast, you get to you get to add those things when you say estimate for some reason you don't it because forecasting i suppose is i always think of the weather we know how vulnerable that is i mean if anybody right. says an estimate that's a thing uh, based on you've done it loads of times so you should know this then uh, right it's, it's right. Got a, a level of fidelity that a forecast doesn't right and, and the fact that you know <laughs> that, that those people who want a rock solid estimate are responsible for making it true that actually none of this has ever been done before. Yeah, yeah. They'll cheerfully stand up brand new teams in brand new technology on a brand new domain and then say, well, you've done this before. It's like, well, yeah, the, the, only thing, the only thing I've done before is get dumped in this whole new environment. So the only thing I can tell you for sure is I don't know when I'll be done yet. <laughs> let, me build up some let me build up some history. And based on that, I will be able to forecast. <laughs> <laughs> But we seem to have less and less time to do anything now, don't we? Yeah, that's true. I, I, it, it varies, but in the last couple of years, I found myself saying to people, you know, we used to do feasibility studies. Yeah. Um, and now we don't. But if you let me do a feasibility study for six weeks, I'll be able to give you an estimate. And, and ra rather than sell them the idea I'm going to start, you know, and then we know nothing, it's like, let's do something. And I found, possibly because I'm now talking to people of my age, um, that that feasibility study as a soundbite has got traction. Yeah. Okay. Um, but as I say, that, that'll be a function of the sort of people I'm talking to um, now, you know, executives, mm. um, as opposed to, um, well, not executives, managers, I guess. Yeah. In the last sort of four or five years, I found myself um, re really getting into the C-suite, um, yeah. 
No, I don't. It's not a phrase I love particularly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> walnut Drive, the Americans. <laughs> you know, get, get in the get in those walnut panelled offices, um, and and as always, evangelising for the agile approach yeah. as far as far as it's appropriate to the volatility of their company and their business and the market, the world. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, talking to people with that level of responsibility, you start to talk about subtly well importantly different things or you put different labels on on, on those agile things yeah and, and in that respect the idea of a feasibility study um to support forecasting has has gone over um and, and to come back to your point I, I i found that has helped to on occasion right it's not 100 yeah, percent yeah. over over half to win the space to win people the space and the right um as you say no one's got time um yeah. But but when you're talking to people and asking to do a feasibility study, of course, their option is to deny a feasibility study. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know if it's feasible. Let's get going. So, so if, if you're not allowed to do a feasibility study, uh, then then perhaps the idea of, you know, forecasting anything, if, if you haven't done that, again, it's playing with words, but I feel no shame. Absolutely. But is there the danger that for some of our more... Um, alert and aggressive agile practitioners they say oh i'm smelling the waterfall and uh, the feasibility is actually some sort of analysis stage not including oh. are we going to get back into that boy yeah no, no it's a that's a good call thank you let me let me be clear about what i what i do in a feasibility study phase right so i sold feasibility study in the boardroom yeah but but what we're doing in, with the teams is a is a launch event um, per sort of Diane Larson, um, agile sort of, um, and you'd be putting together team, um, not team manifestos, or the team mandate, perhaps. What, what's the word that they I'm use? I'm use the word charter, but I'm not charter. sure. Charter. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yep. So team, team. So there's lift off is the book I think that I yeah reach for. Um, so we're doing that kind of agile uh, team chartering. I, um, I want to get everybody in the room, customer, everybody. Yep. Right? I, I like to make it a really big moment. Um, let me come back to the value of that. Um, to answer your question, the key thing about the feasibility um, study or stage that I've sold in the boardroom is that we start work. Right? We have an event and we start work. And my goal is to get three iterations of two weeks in order to have some history. So that at the end of the feasibility study, I can go back into that room and say, okay, we have done this and this and this, and, and we've discovered. So we will have discovered something about the product and the market and the technology. We might have done what Google is pleased to call a design sprint, you know, yes. um, wouldn't have called it that, but you know, that same, it's that same whole team thing. Yeah. But, but yeah, but we've started work. And what, and what we're looking to do is narrow the funnel from could be anything anytime to well well it's this within this boundary and then you can go back into the boardroom and say you know this is the size of thing we can deliver this is the scope um and of course that there's a debate that starts at that point but while that debate rumbles on possibly for another uh, six weeks you've got another three iterations under your belt yeah, yeah yeah and if you're doing it right you arrive at some point in that debate where you can look back on three four product deliveries and now you've started to build up the trust with your client. And actually, as, when it works really well, as you know, the debate kind of goes away in the face yeah. of actual regular delivery. 
<laughs> back to your maintaining the system into existence. Yes. Which yeah. I'm, going to, I'm going to steal that phrase, by the way. It's fine. It's not mine. Um, I thought it wouldn't be. I believe, I believe it belongs to a man called Pete Davenport, and he's retired now. So. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Pete. This is your legacy. <laughs> we might have to put a li- with all the name drops. We'll put links at the bottom of the podcast. So uh, if there's anybody in retirement looking for income, I'm sure you'll play a royalty. <laughs> walk, walk around with little cards. Every time we spit one out, hold up the credit. <laughs> This one, Capus Jones. I haven't an original thought in my head. It, it's what I learned it from a book. <laughs> oh, you, you can you can have all the thoughts of others, but it's being able to apply it in the in the real world that makes that's, a lot of difference. That's ex- that's exactly right. Yeah. So, so coming back to and and I sort of just want. I mean, there's so many things I'd love to talk to you about, and but just back to this value mm-hmm. turn question because you've had your lovely team you've got it all set so you've got an investment there and then you punted the big thing everyone's happy as larry and then it just crashed and burned you know what happened to the value and what do we think about the return right they're they're different and you 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 quite rightly said yeah they're not the same thing in yeah yeah so you you, as as you know you 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 teed me up to sort of um one of my one of my real hot buttons um you know, value is not the same as return. So there's a lot of conversations in any project, I hope, but in any agile team flow about value. And my observation over the years since 93 is that oftentimes people will be in the room talking about value and they're talking about two completely different things. Um, And as, as you know, from the setup, I have taken to, to being very clear and using the word return when I am talking about stakeholder return. So, you know, the, 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 the value to the organization, then I prefer to call return. And it's, and as you say, it's, it's a return on their investment yes. projects or non projects. If you're, if you're an anti-project person and I kind of am, <laughs> you, 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 you set up a flow, a longstanding, stream yeah um but but like a project it's a it's a money in money out machine you know you're going to invest in that stream perhaps at a steady rate perhaps at a stepped rate perhaps at a steady rate with with surges nevertheless there's an investment there's an expenditure and out of that you want two things ideally you want to create value for your customer sure and then and then you as an investor want a return and I just think it's helpful to be explicitly clear which one you're talking about at any moment in time. And I think that uh, the pointy end of that is the product owner role. Yeah. So for me, the product owner role is defined in the Scrum Guide, right? That nobody heard of a product owner before Jeff and Ken wrote the Scrum Guide. That's where it arrived. And the product owner's purpose is to sort the backlog. Yeah. Um, to, to impose a sequence on all the ideas in the backlog how do they do that by value of course yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and immediately there's a problem who f- f- whom do they serve as product yeah. owner um, and and a lot of product owners who are veering towards the product they, they'll, they'll, they'll no let me not try and speak for what's in their heads but I, I, you know, a lot of people want to be product people, I see. And, and what they mean by that is I want to give a service to the customer. 
And, and who can argue with that? It's beautiful, right? That, that sense of delivering value to a customer and doing good work for individuals and society through your product, great. But if you've been put into a senior product owner role by an organization, I think they think that you're there to sort for return. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they should be the same. But I don't think they are unless you explicitly manage them constantly towards being the same. Right. You know, I think they'll diverge. I think, <clears throat> um, so you, you mentioned books. I have the books. <laughs> Henry, <laughs> Henry Gantt, the author of the Gantt chart, right? The man who gave us um, several charts, actually. There's no such thing as a the Gantt chart. But 100 years ago, 101 years ago, he wrote Organizing for Work. And, and he made the point that there's a problem. There's a divergence. I think he called it a parting of the ways. This is 101 years ago. And the parting of the ways was that uh, what he called corporations are constantly seeking to get unreasonable profit. Um, they're looking to make more profit than that to which they are entitled from the service that they render to the customer. And therefore, it's important that blah, blah, blah. And I just think, like, we have the same problem today. And because of the money they've got, this, you know, we, we still see this challenge. So, so let, me, let me step back from the deep end <laughs> and, 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 and modern day politics. And just in our jobs as product owners, I just think it's, it, it, it's, if you know there are two and you've got different words for each, you can manage them towards each other. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and, and so that's, um, that's, that's my kind of advice. And, and, and strategy and, and I will say that you know good product owners I think veer towards wanting to be something called a product manager yeah and they start reading Marty Kagan maybe you know Roman Pichler um, John Cutler these, these are all great names great great writers you know making good contributions and and you know I like I guess might have been Marty that said first, but, but the, the general feeling as you get more into that is that in the end, your product manager is the CEO of the product. Well, I can tell you that if you're the CEO of anything, you are very interested in stakeholder return <laughs> and your money and your investment. So paradoxically, it's, like, it's actually the more responsibility you get for a product with your um, service, the people hat on, the more you'll be faced with the tension of actually answering to the people who are giving you the money to do it exactly. and, and the golden rule, you know, yeah. them that has the gold rule. So how, how do you, how do you react to that? Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, part one of my answer is we've just talked about, just be clear that there are two. Yep. Um, graph them both <laughs> like a good graph, <laughs> you know, graph them both. And then get into a proper conversation about why those lines go the way they're going and what you can do to make them better. Uh, yeah, I, th I think that's very interesting observation because I do I, I have sympathy for all the roles of agile and developer or scrum master or whatever, but I look at the product owner in particular and think, my goodness, that is so many things to service. It, uh, a lot of people will overload the product owner role with all of those things for me with the risk of being controversial I, I feel like the product owner role is defined in the scrum guide yeah you've got one job 
sort the sort the backlog for value. Yeah. The thing I hear a lot, you know, product owner is a proxy customer. I'm sorry, no, in no way. Right? You, nobody speaks for the customer except the customer. Yeah, the, product yeah. owner, the product owner's role, as as I would, you know, coach. Like, you need to make sure that what the customer values is made visible to the developers who have to realize it. Yeah. So you've got this catalytic role, but you, you don't want to stand between. You want you want to be ushering the right customer into the room with the right developer. There's a lot to be said for who's the right developer, right? I know uh, <laughs> we've, we've coached Agile a long time. We've, we know that not all developers see the world the way Ron Jeffries and Alistair Coburn. Yeah. Might, and, and there's disagreement amongst the signatories as to, you know, yes. uh, whether it's, you know, work with the customer every day. Some of, some of the signatories don't really, you know, they signed it off, but anyway, um, yeah. So the product owner, how does the product owner prioritize? Deep relationship with the customer. How do they make sure the developer knows how to deliver it, facilitate the conversation? Act as a proxy, I would caution against. Don't step in. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't, if you carry that water, you'll become, and then, then, you'll, then you'll end up where I was in 93. You'll be walking into a room with a bank and the bank will go, what the hell is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so put, put them together. Don't stand in for. Sage advice. Very well made. Um, we're sort of coming to the end of our broadcast, believe it or not. And we've probably touched on such a small percentage. Never <laughs> <laughs> knowingly short of an opinion. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm going to ask you, Three things, first of all. Um, we can come back so we can discuss some more subjects. Oh, yeah, love to. Love to. Thank, you, Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Poke me and leave me to... <laughs> I, feel, I feel like you've sort of wound me up and set me running, and I, I, I'm wondering what I've said now. <laughs> what, what's interesting is I occasionally take notes, believe it mm -hmm. or not, when I'm listening to answers. Uh, sometimes just to think about the next question, but... I'll take more notes with you than I ever have with anybody else, I have to say. So, <laughs> can this be true? <laughs> because it's not a competition. The second question I, asked, I was going to ask you very quickly is, how's your current project? Because I know you've been uh, looking at tools, and QV is particularly, is it QV or QV? Oh, just QV. QV. Um, you've been looking at alternatives to, was it the Unjira? Yeah. Um, yes, I, I build QV as the Unjira. Um, so... Um, it's a project to create a highly graphical um, tool yeah. for people like us to, ma to manage the backlog, to manage backlogs, to manage the decision-making process around the backlog. Yeah. You know, I mentioned the graphs. So, you know, at, at its simplest, and you could do this in Excel, but at its simplest, let's start with a graph of investment, which is taking you down, and revenue, which is going up. Um, if the revenue is the outcome that you seek, let's map also the output in terms of something interesting. So now I've got three lines on the graph, and um, and even that simple that one simple graph starts to trigger really interesting conversations. Yeah. Um, like why is the revenue flatlining? <laughs> you know, <laughs> literally flatlining right in front of you. Yeah. Um, 
you know, um, and it might be, well, we've delivered all this output, but we haven't shipped it to the, to the market or whatever. Um, it's, it's, yes, uh, I, and, and starting from that graph, I, I feel like um, there's a number of canvases that we all draw regularly. Yeah. And there are some canvases that I like that are not very common. And QV is, um, I guess you'd cast it right now as an experiment to discover whether it is possible to manage a backlog, by which I mean making all those decisions yeah. and, and doing all that collaboration and communication, whether it's possible to do that in a highly graphical, you know, purely canvas environment yeah. in, w in which you, you don't fill in a form ever so much as move a shape on the canvas mm. and that's and that's the movement um, uh, well i'm looking forward to it because uh, i'm very visual i'm very visual uh, yeah. um, and I, I like touching things actually hearing is my probably my weakest skill <laughs> not least because i'm a bit mutton jeff in one ear anyway but uh, yeah. i'm very much looking forward to the next demo of qv oh grand well i'd be delighted to, to show you just as soon as if you go if you guys would like to set me up an email yeah yeah at agility by nature, then please write to Mike at agility by nature, and um, yeah, and then you know between us, <coughs> between us, we can you know field all of that stuff. Love, love to. Anytime there's a conversation, um, love to talk. Fabulous. Um, always a pleasure. You're one of my favourite uh, raconteurs. I have to say, Mike, you know that. Um, but that's enough. That's enough praise for today because I know you've got work to do. Um, honestly, though, if you, Mike is a fantastic reservoir. Um, really has an incredible range of um, information, thoughts, and coaching abilities over with Agile Canon. So well worth get in touch with him if you've got a particular problem we also have all the other wonderful associates you can get hold of me at ian at agilitybynature.com and i'll happily respond to you um i'm sure we'll have mike in the chair again but in the meantime i hope everybody has a lovely day and mike thank you so very much thank you off <laughs> oh i know what's <laughs>